Her name is Catherine Boney, someone I met via Clubhouse, and she is a visionary coach. The reason why I wanted to interview Catherine is because I heard her talk in Clubhouse about suicide and her experience of suicide, and I knew that she had a message of hope. So I got in touch with her and said, hey, would you be interested in speaking to my audience? And of course, the answer was yes. Perhaps the line wasn't great today. In between, I missed a, a few things that Catherine was saying, but that's okay, because you would have listened to the main message that she has got, and it's certainly a message of hope. What she talks about is clearly spiritual. And for someone who has made so many attempts at suicide and is still here to tell a story of her deepest, darkest despair moments and how she has come through it from a place of understanding, from a place of knowing, is profound. I was deeply touched by the conversation I had with her. And I know that if you listen with an open mind, you too will be touched by her story and the message of hope and how she is now using her story and her lived experience to make a difference in the people, people's lives, people who come to her. And I think you too will be inspired by what she has to share. This podcast may challenge your beliefs about well-being. Hi, we are Rani and Suraj, a husband and wife team, psychiatrists, authors and well-being coaches. We guide heart-centered entrepreneurs and professionals to their true well-being. We bring our mental health and coaching experience and understanding of Eastern spirituality into our conversations every week. So if you're excited to embrace clarity, fun and ease in your life, relationships and business, stay tuned. Welcome to the Listening Into Wellbeing podcast. Hey, Catherine, welcome. Thanks, Rani. Nice to see you. The reason I wanted to invite you to this podcast, because I heard you speak about a topic that um, you can say is pretty stigmatizing. People are worried about uh, the implications. I wanted to give people a message of hope. And I know that because you survived something that most people would not even want to mention, I really want to get your story, your perspective about that. Yeah, no, it's perfect. So anytime people mention the, the S word, which is suicide or that I have self-harm, like um, everyone goes into panic mode. I know that how you spoke um, uh, when I heard you in Clubhouse is that it was very powerful. It was about hope. And I want my listeners to feel hope. It's so funny just listening to you talk about the idea of the word. Because I'm feeling it in my body, right? <laughs> like you're just setting it up like, oh, we're going to have that conversation. And all of a sudden my heart starts pounding. All of a sudden, like I'm just noticing my hands and my, it's like, all right, we're talking about this thing. And it's, it's so real what you're pointing towards because we are all so afraid of the word suicide. Mm. And we have so many stories about it. We have given it so much power. And in doing so, what I see about it from my own experiences is that we have taken something that is incredibly complicated and difficult and have compounded it 
to make it just so incredibly untouchable. This thing that that is part of what we experience as humans is not anything that we can really sit with and be with because it is so terrifying to us Mm. as medical professionals, as parents, as friends, as relatives. And for me, um, the way that I identify, and, and this is, this is new for me, right? So, um, the experience is old, but the understanding and the awareness of it is relatively fresh. It's just happened in the last few months. So it's still, uh, an exploration of how do we sit with this? How can we get curious about this conversation and what can we do to support one another in really helping people who are struggling? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So I am an attempted suicide survivor. Those are my words. Uh, I've never heard anyone introduce themselves in such a way, but I am a person who has had suicidal ideation. So I have sat with the thought of ending my life. So I had a suicidal directive and I'll talk a little bit more about that such that I took action on the thought, right? So I had the thought that occurred to me and it seemed real enough that it required uh, an action in life. So I took the effort to end my life deliberately. And what's true is that I was unsuccessful. And that is the reason that I'm sitting here today. And there was a time in my life where I had that experience uh, five times over a 12-year period. What, trying five times? I've tried to kill myself five times, yes. So a little bit about my story. Um, So when I was 10, my mother was uh, diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And that was just devastating. Because my mother was bigger than life star in the sky and she went from being larger than life glamorous to uh, crippled in bed just moaning in pain and what I saw about that like the way that it occurred to me as a 10 year old was that she was creating her experience and her thinking so it was the first time that I had a realization about how life worked. As a 10-year-old? As a 10-year-old. Had an insight that she was in some way choosing the experience that she was having by creating it in thought. Like, very clearly, I heard that communication. It made no sense to me whatsoever. (laughs) Like, I didn't understand it. I just knew it as truth, right? That our experience of reality is in our thinking, lives in our thinking. 
So between her, the loss of my mother, because it was a grief, right? Because the mother that I had was no longer part of my life. The woman that uh, she had become was someone who um, was just really focused on uh, the chronic illness and was really just not available, reasonably so. And uh, my father is uh, retired now, but he was an anesthesiologist. He practiced for 40 some odd years. And one of the things that we don't talk about in society, right? Because we have this vision of the medical community and what the medical community embodies. And there is this kind of hero worship, right? So if you're a doctor, the rest of the world is going to look at you because you're pretty much taking the place of God in, in our culture, right? You know the answer. You are the one who, you know, if you're a surgeon, you, you play life and death with people on the operating table, right? This is the glorified image of what we've created in the medical community. And what I see about that is that it doesn't give a lot of space for surgeons to be humans, for doctors to really just experience their humanity, and so the thing that people don't talk about is all of the drug abuse that goes on within the medical community. The PhD or the MDs that uh, are struggling with their experience. And so there is a lot of um, misuse of medication to try and get through, right? I know my father suffered terribly the first time someone passed away on the operating table. Like he really took it so personally. And I know that was really hard on him because he had this idea of who he was and um, he just couldn't reconcile it. And there wasn't really any place for him to, to go. So I understand, like I can get where he was at, but, um, you know, having a father who was for all intents and purposes, a drug addict and having a mother who had this debilitating illness and was no longer present in my life. Uh, I was struggling really badly and I had these thoughts that didn't make any sense. So it's reasonable that two years later when I was 12, I decided that I didn't want to live anymore. Like it was so painful to me to be ignored. It was so painful to be it was so painful to be in this family that felt like it should be something that it wasn't, right? Like I was missing the connection and I was missing the, the, the feeling of, of love. So that struggle was real. And in my mind, I knew that there was a possible future where the world could change. Like I knew that it wasn't necessarily, this was a moment to moment. Like there is some, um, that life ebbs and flows. So I knew that. And I was really clear that I was done. Like, I just, I can't live anymore. I'm done. I'm in too much pain and this hurts too much. So I took a handful of pills and um, tried to end my life because that's what really seemed like the best decision in the moment. And what's true is that the handful of pills that I took didn't kill me. And what's true is that I never told anyone what I had done because there was such an emphasis on other people's thinking and what it would mean 
what what the world would make of me, what what it would mean to my family, how it would be viewed, what what it would create about me in life. And it wouldn't be okay. Like there was no place where that action and that choice would have been seen from a space of compassion and love. All I saw was the criticism, the judgment, the ostracizing, the 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 stigmatism, the the finger pointing, the blame, right? What's wrong with you that you did this? Mm. So I um, did the only thing that seemed reasonable. I didn't say a word. So subsequently, what occurred is that, you know, it's, it's like you can get up the next day and pretend like it's okay. You can get up and pretend like, you know, you didn't just have this moment where life became so overwhelming and it was no longer something that you wanted to participate in. And then you basically tried to leave and weren't allowed. And it's like, okay, that didn't really happen. (laughs) Okay, like, I'll just pretend like everything is okay, like smooth it over, right? It's, it's just like, let's just pretend like nothing's going on here and just kind of push it to the side and just keep going. But the feelings and the experience, right, it didn't go anywhere. And so it makes sense to me that two years later, I found myself in the same circumstance. And three years after that, and two years after that. And I'm just not very good at uh, taking action, basically. Um, I, I'm just not, that's not, it just never worked. And, and honestly, I wonder about the last time because I took a whole bottle of prescription pills and drank a huge bottle of red wine. And I still don't quite understand how I didn't die. Like there really is this question in me about what that means, like how that's possible, but there's no reason to dwell on it. It just is a thing. And it's like, I I shouldn't really be here, but I am. So the only thing I see about any of that is that uh, I have something to share. Like, right. Like there's a conversation here and, and something that I see about this that is hopeful is uh, different, is humanizing, right? So what I see about it, so, so the, the end of the story, right? So what happens next is um, a first attempt was at 12, and the last, like, physical attempt was when I was 25 and I had met the love of my life and we were dating, we were living together and we were doing our life and we unexpectedly got pregnant and that was okay. I mean, we were together. It wasn't necessarily what we were intending, but it's, it was fine. So we got married really quickly and Right at the end of the first trimester, I started really having suicidal ideation. And I got really fixed on how I was going to kill myself and the baby. Like, I was so certain that I couldn't do this. Like, it's not going to happen. 
So I told my husband that I wasn't okay and that this was really where I was at. And basically he had a choice. Either he could have me or he could have neither of us. But that that was what was true and that was what I saw. And so he made the decision <laughs> that, um, that maybe us not having a baby at that time was probably the best choice since I was so broken mentally. Like I really was not okay. So I had an abortion in the 19th, almost 20th week of that pregnancy. And that was just devastating. Like it broke me into so many pieces. And for me, that was the moment when I checked out of life. Like that's when I said, I'm not playing this game anymore. And I don't think we talk about that very much. Like what it really looks like when people choose to step out of the game of life, get on the sidelines, like not really want to play anymore. Because there's words that we have to describe it, right? That's when I started developing depression. That's when I started to have anxious behavior. That's when um, I gained a lot of weight. That's when I stopped leaving the house. That's when I stopped hanging out with my friends. That's when I stopped participating in life. And what I know about it is that as human beings, we can live life in life, right? We can go out and interact with people and go to work and participate, right? Like be involved in life, volunteer and study and have relationships and play. Like that's being in life. And if you take yourself out of that part of it, what happens is that you live life in your head. So instead of physically leaving the world, you suddenly live entirely in your mind. And the creative force that we are <laughs> makes elaborate stories of reality in our own minds because we have nothing better to do. So we get so creative, but it's such a misuse of the creative use of thought because thought is meant to be out in the world. Thought is meant to have conversation and, you know, play with people and experience life in 3D. <laughs> it's not meant to just sit in your own head, in your own house, on the couch, creating elaborate stories about what's true. And the, the less stimulus and the less experience we have outside, the more we drop into a lower and lower and lower and lower state of consciousness until all of the symptoms that are a clinical diagnosis is simply the impact of chronic overthinking because all you're doing is sitting in your own thought. But can I say, Catherine, that when you were doing that you didn't realize that I guess because otherwise you wouldn't have been doing that is that, is that right so when you go back to what happened back then when you were doing that surely you just couldn't help it 
you were where you were at the time. Is, is it right to say? So it is true that I was where I was at the time and it was the best thinking that I had at the time. But it's also true that I had said that I wasn't going to play. Like I said to my, I mean, like I said, not to anyone in particular, but unless I understand how this works, I'm not going to play the game until I get a firm grasp on what it is that I don't see. So it was in me, there was a knowing that, that I was missing something. I just didn't know what it was. Okay. And how long ago was this? So that was when I was 25. So, so um, it was 17 years ago. 17 years ago. And then what happened? How did you, how, how did it all switch for you? Um, it started when I was called to teach. So, so there were you know, three years where I just wasn't, um, no, it was more than that. It just, it was a depression. It was an unhappiness. It was a, just a numbness to the world. And when I turned 32, I think, I... My husband and I had, it was about a five year, it was about a five year period, right? Yeah. Cause the, the baby was at 26 and then around 31. So there was about five years where it was just stagnant. I think that's the best way, right? Like the, the water wasn't flowing. It just was sitting. And then I um, was just unhappy. And then I woke up and it was like, Hey, we should talk about having another baby. So it was about moving forward, kind of, you know, picking up the pieces and starting again. And I got called to teach A Course in Miracles, which is something that I have been around my entire life. So there was this clear, like, hey, look in this direction and see what's there for you. So that started my journey teaching. And um, I had my daughter, which was amazingly healing. And it, it helped me to kind of pull it back together. But the impact of the anxiety and the depression and the busy mindedness, um, it got compounded when my daughter was born because all of that got focused on her. So now it was like, I don't have to worry about me. I have to worry about her. <laughs> and everything was, you know, what about her? And, and she's not safe and it's not safe and she's not okay. She's not going to be okay. Like, what do I do? How do I fix it? How do I keep her safe? So there was a lot of busy mindedness and a lot of sped up in that. So I continued on my journey. I got to a place in my teaching of A Course in Miracles, which is about removing the blocks to love's presence in your life, right? So it's recognizing that who you are in your essence is a child of God, right? That you were created perfectly, right? You were created in perfection, that exactly as you are is all that you ever need be. And that in that space of love and um, willingness, you get to see life from a connection and a deeper understanding. 
the stories that we create fall away. And all that remains is the truth of the experience. So I'm teaching A Course in Miracles, and what I know is that I'm missing something. (laughs) Same story, right? I'm missing something. So I sat down and I talked to God, and I hadn't talked to God in a long time (laughs) because uh, I was a little bit afraid of God, if I'm honest, because I was sure that some of the choices I'd made in my life were uh, questionable at that point. So I talked to God and I said, look, I'll be this teacher you're asking me to be. Like, I will stand in the world and I'll show up whatever it is that you need me to do. But you got to explain it to me. (laughs) Yeah, what am I missing? Like, I'm not doing this unless I am absolutely grounded in truth. Unless what it is that I'm sharing is real. I'm not going to build an altar to my thinking, which is the way that I described it, right? What Catherine thinks the world is, and then share that with, you know, teach that to everyone. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. It never did. So I was like, I'll teach, but show me the truth. Like show me how life works. And it took me a while to notice, but within like 10 minutes, I was listening to an audio recording of an author and he was sharing about the three principles understanding and this man named Sid Banks. And it was so transformative. It like pierced my heart. And I just had this feeling of just awakening I didn't have any idea what it was. I just noticed, like, all of a sudden I had this feeling that I hadn't felt in so long because I had been so hopeless, that I had been so disconnected, that I had been so alone in my experience. And it was even just the the simplest part of the understanding, yeah, that I'm not broken in need of fixing. There was nothing for me to do but see it clearly, that it just shifted. And then it became the journey of unfolding. And for me, it was a seven-year process that um, accumulated, like I said, at the beginning of this year. So what happened for me is I had remembered that there was these experiences from earlier in my life, but I hadn't processed them. I hadn't sat down with a therapist. I hadn't gone through them. I hadn't journaled about them. I hadn't done any of the techniques or approaches that look beneficial to people that have those kinds of, uh, that kind of emotional baggage, I guess is the best way to say it. To me, it had just sat for a long time. And I had just let it be. So in February, I was taking a program with uh, a mentor in um, the Three Principles community. And what I noticed is that I was absolutely afraid. Like, There lived in me 
this separation between the person that I had become, right? Happily married, mother of three, right? Midwestern housewife, like, right? Like this, this beautiful person with the gorgeous smile that you noticed, right? Like there she is showing up to life. So there's this part of me. But that past, right? Like that, that, that girl, that 12-year-old, that 15-year-old, that 18-year-old, that 21-year-old, that 25-year-old that was so hurting in the experience. Like, I had never looked at her. And what I saw was that I was terrified of her. <laughs> like, she was so scary to me, and it seemed so real. I mean, even in the conversation, it, it doesn't make sense. But I don't, I mean, it's, it was so real to me. Like, it was true. I was terrified of her. I thought that she could hurt me. I thought that, 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 that she was separate from, from who I am, right? Like, I had it split. And what occurred for me is that I really saw that it was just the story that I had made up. And for me, it went one step further because I was raised deeply religious um, in the school of Catholicism. And in those teachings, suicide is a sin. And if you are someone who takes your own life then you are cast out of God's love forever. You are just beyond, right? Beyond redemption. And what I saw in February was that I believed that. Yeah. Like I really saw that I had created this story that my actions meant that God didn't love me, that I was somehow separate from life. And I lived into that story as if it were true. That was my understanding of life, was that I could participate, but I would never be included because I was already damned. Hmm. Wow. Right? And so when I got brave... (laughs) And I looked and I saw it. It's a story. (laughs) It's not true. I've never been separate from that which created me. I'm not, you know, eternally damned to hellfire. Like none of that's real. Like it's just part of the illusion, right? It's the story that we make up to understand what it is we see, but it's not real. And so for me, when that fell, I saw something about suicidal ideation that completely changed my come from, right? Like I saw it in an entirely new way. So the back describe what it feels like to someone who's never been in that place, right? Like you've never, I'm, I'm fairly confident that most human beings at one time or another have had the thought of suicidal ideation, like a glancing thought of, 
oh, I could just end this, or I don't want to be here anymore, or wow, you know, I don't have to do this. And, and it drops because it's so not, there's nothing attaching to that, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't impact. It's just kind of like it's there and it's gone. But for me, when I call it a suicidal directive, what I'm pointing at is this feeling of absolute and complete separation. And the metaphor that I can offer is being adrift in the ocean. So that image of being in the middle of a typhoon and you're stuck in the waves and there's nowhere to go, right? There's no safety. There's no security. There's nothing to hold on to. And you are just getting hammered, right? So there's waves coming at you from every which direction and you're getting pulled under and you're getting thrown up and the riptide has you. And it's just like, it is so beyond what any human being can endure. Like it is the epitome of suffering and there's nowhere to go. Nothing to do because you are stuck in the water, drowning. And all of a sudden, this thought comes. And it's so amazing because this thought comes. And it is a gift because this thought comes and you pop up out of the water. And for one second, you can take a breath because this thought has lifted you from your current state of awareness and brought you to a different place. And what there is to see about it is not that that thought is, hey, you should end your life, and it's not a directive. It's not saying, hey, you don't need to be here anymore. What it is to me is it's an insight, and it's a beautiful gift because you just saw how human beings work. Even in our deepest moments of suffering, we are perfectly designed because we're given a way out. And it's just a momentary experience, right? Like it lasts for a second, but it is enough to show you that your state of mind can shift moment to moment to moment based on your thinking that state of despair that I was in, right? Being sucked under by the waves and being thrown about. One thought, and I'm out of the water. One thought, I'm standing on the beach. Hmm. If we could get eyes for that, to see that that is actually a blessing, right? Like, that's taking a human being that's in, a, in, in the throes of the most a human mind can endure and seeing that that's a call for home, right? That's a call for a return to love of that, which you are, because we weren't designed to suffer our thinking. Mm. We weren't put on this planet to endure that kind of psychological heartache. It's a, it's a series of misunderstandings, right? I'm absolutely certain that my parents adore me. And in that moment when I was 12 years old, it didn't occur to me that they did. Mm. It occurred to me that I was alone in a world where I was unloved and unwanted and disconnected and that there was nothing and no one for me. Yeah. 
And God was like, hey, stop. You're good. <laughs> Look, you don't have to have that thinking. You don't have to be stuck in that theory. Like, that's not real. But I didn't know what an insight was. I didn't see how our minds work. No one around me could point at it and say, oh, look, Catherine, that was your first insight. Isn't it amazing how one thought can shift your entire experience? Yeah. Let's talk about the nature of thought, right? Let's talk about the principles of thought and how thought works. And then let's look at that. Why is that that you're feeling so disconnected? Don't you know that that wisdom lives inside of you? Don't you know that you could never not have your inner guidance? Don't you know you couldn't be separate from that? Because it's how you were created. But that's, yeah, that's, that's what I see about it. Yeah. It's like when we can put down our own fears about what the word means and what the thought means, and to really just understand that in so many ways, it's, it's just a function of our design. <laughs> That's how we were created. And it's a total and complete misunderstanding of the story about what we've made it mean from a religious context, from a, a med- mental health perspective, right? A continued pointing at a brokenness that doesn't exist in a single human being. There's so many things you have said, Catherine, that like, wow, wow, okay, let's, can we go back to this? Can we go back to this? But I think, you know, people have suicidal ideations and they are just neutral, but then, you know, uh, because of the stories and the fear of what it means, it becomes a big monster. It's like a child being scared of the monster under the bed and it's like really freaking out because there are monsters under the bed and, you know, having all sorts of tools and strategies and, and mommy has to remind her again and again that look there are no monsters on the bed but it has to something has to click for her to suddenly see actually mommy was right all this time there are no monsters under the bed um, until they, they 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 wake up so i i really see that and can i just say a fun, funny thing that um when i was very young and you said everyone must have had suicidal ideation at some point. I still remember when I was young, I I had a, you know, what people would call a perfect childhood. You know, I had no trauma that I can remember, nothing like it. Obviously, we had, you know, things that I made up to mean something and, you know, a, a lot of, like, name callings between our siblings and fights and everything and, like, wanting to put someone down and sort of saying, oh, you know, all, all those sort of sibling stuff, which is you know, perfectly normal. And I remember once having this thought that I just want to die. I just want to end my life. And obviously I didn't take any action on that, but I was very young. And I just said, what would happen if I just, you know, died and killed myself? And I didn't mean it that way, but I that thought came to me and I got scared when I had that thought. And obviously, uh, you know, I didn't take any action or anything, but that thought did come to me. But if I had lost and lost of trauma one after another, and I had, you know, one thing after another happening, that could have easily got into like, oh my goodness, that means that I do need to do something about it. This is what I mean. So I, I wanted to share that. And, and, and you know, because just to 
in a way destigmatize it and say, yes, even I had this thought because I was really, you know, feeling sorry for myself as well, that oh, no one loves me, that kind of thing. And it was not true. And it was <laughs> not true. But if I can have that, that, that thought that come to me and when I was very young and thinking like, I hope people will, you know, miss me when I die, that, that kind of thing that was very innocent, but I did have that. And I'm saying this, so like you said, perhaps everyone had that idea, at least like maybe the world would be a better place without me. And a lot of my patients say that even if they are not actively suicidal, that they do have the thought from time to time, but they know they, they are not going to do anything. So it's a spectrum, isn't it? To from just having those occasional ideas and thinking in the moment that uh, I, you know, I want to end my life and completely being able to not take it seriously to the extreme where, you know, you just keep doing it and and you know some people some people do end up killing their uh, killing themselves but i just wanted to uh, use that use your um your sharing to say that actually maybe you know is is more out there than we think it is it's definitely something which is quite a, a common experience so so that's something i wanted to say the second thing when you were talking about one thought like you know, you have all this in the turmoil and everything. One thought could pop you back to like, oh, you know, this is it. Just suddenly wake you up. And uh, you might have heard of Michael Neal talk about his suicide attempt. Um, do, do Have you heard the story when... Um, about a hundred times, yeah. Michael yeah, yeah. One of my it's so mentors. funny, yeah. and it's really when you said you know you just one thought need to need to pop up. Do you want to share the story to our audience about Michael Neal? Sure. So, um, yeah. So Michael Neal is is known for his depression, and he talks about the idea of suicidal ideation, and um, he had an out of body experience when he was in college. <laughs> He felt like he was being sucked out the window, like he was absolutely certain that he was being uh, sucked out the window and was holding on for dear life and managed to uh, grab the phone and call the suicide hotline because it was something he knew by heart and got a busy signal. <laughs> and, and there was something in him that saw the humor in it that he was calling this phone number because he was about to get sucked out the window because that's what it looked like to him and the line was busy yeah. <laughs> and when he saw that it created that opening right it created that space for it to shift just enough for him to call a friend and a friend came and got him and and he was able to 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 get through it yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it is just that one thought. And it's not the thought specifically that I'm pointing to. It's that our thinking changes in a thought. So the experience that we're having will shift in a single thought. Yeah. But it's getting eyes for that. It's starting to have conversations about it. It's sharing it as how our bodies and minds work. And so when it becomes normalized, when it just becomes the truth that we all see, yeah. when someone is in that place and in that space, we can see it for what it is. Oh, I just had that thought. I just thought that, you know, I'm, I'm in this feeling place that looks like this is true for me. 
And knowing that we can talk about it, like it's not a, it's, it's not, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a, one of the experiences of being human. Yeah. And, and when we can see that it's just a human being that's having a really hard time because your experience is not pleasant when you're in that thinking, like it is so painful and all I needed, right? Like, it's so funny to me when I finally started talking about it, which was in March, <laughs> where are we at the end of April? <laughs> so still very new, right? Like I said, I'm, I'm still in this exploration, but I shared my story, right? With someone for the very first time and he looked at me and he said, I'm so glad that you're here. And it was so powerful. It is the simplest statement. And 30 years later, it's a little absurd in a whole lot of ways. But it touched me so profoundly. Because I was so certain that not being here was the best option for me. And so for someone to take the time and just recognize that me being here was the better option, like it just changed everything for me. So there's a beautiful awareness in that, that there's something that a person who is having that experience isn't hearing about life. Mm -hmm. And what those of us who, well, I, I can't honestly think that there isn't a human being alive that doesn't respond to this from their heart. I think about, you know, people jumping off bridges and perfect strangers coming along and like, you know, moving heaven and earth to ensure that they don't take their own life. Like, what can we do to keep you here? Like, this is not, you know, that's not the option. Like, how can we help? Like, there's just such a, a space that lives in us that really has compassion and love for one another. Yeah. But we don't have access to express it in the way that we've set this up in current society. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, someone in the three principles will told me this, that when people um, want to kill themselves, I think they are looking for peace and they think that peace is only possible if they kill the body and, and to be able to show people that you do not have to kill the body in order to feel the peace that you're looking for, that you are already it in your true essence. You know, that would be a biggie. That would definitely revolutionize the way we see, you know, the way we think about suffering, the way we think that because I'm suffering, I cannot be peaceful. And, and just to the realization that, you know, how the mind works, the nature of thought. And like you said, you know, your story is so powerful, Catherine. You are here to share something that can be a taboo subject and people might not want to talk about it. And, you know, people don't have to talk about it if they don't 
you know want to or don't feel don't don't feel um ready to but by you being here and sharing this gives other people permission to feel like that and still know that they are deeply okay so what you're pointing at is exactly how i articulate it suicidal ideation suicidal directives like they're a call for home and home is that feeling that lives in us and that is what it is that i share because home is available to us you don't have to end the body to find peace and love and that's that's exactly it that's what i teach in a course of miracles that's what i coach and that's what one thought away that is the message of one thought away which is the global movement to end suicide uh, you know i i'm just having this experience of a um just a just a lovely feeling that's all i'll call it when you said that that's a that that's just a call from home Yeah, uh, that's so beautiful. You know, tell me more. Oh, I'm just loving this conversation. Thank you for just what you said. It touched me. Uh, and um, tell me something about the Course in Miracles because I know that uh, a lot of people might be thinking, "What is Course in Miracles?" So um, I would like you to just summarize. You know, for the people who have never heard of the Course in Miracles, and how how would you put it to them? Sure. Um, so what I have to say about it today is that A Course in Miracles is the wisdom of the modern century. So we as human beings have access to the wisdom of the ages. There was a particular prophet who walked the earth that is a, a favorite teacher of many. Jesus of Nazareth, right? who was a, an enlightened Jewish rabbi. And his teachings are, are very popular, are very uh, held very closely as how human beings are meant to be in life. But there are other prophets and teachers in different traditions around the world that are equally as beautiful and as, you know, they all share truth. So it's just what there is to share. And there was a sharing of truth that occurred in the late 1970s. So in the United States and Canada in specific, there was uh, a spiritual teacher named Sid Banks who had an enlightenment experience and shared his articulation of that experience as the three principles. And it's a, uh, understanding of how life works. Simultaneous to that, there was a woman in New York who was at Columbia University and she was a professor of psychology and she was struggling because what she saw didn't work for her. The system of labels and identification and the disordered thinking that human beings can be classified and that we can somehow describe them in that way didn't make sense to her. 
So she prayed and basically said that there has to be a better way. I am willing, please show me a better way. And so God told her to grab a pen and start taking notes. (laughs) So she basically wrote as a medium the entire Course in Miracles. And the Course in Miracles is 365 lessons in the workbook and then a manual for teachers. And then there's others besides, but that's what has been, those three sections are what are, what encompasses the Course in Miracles. So it's, it's a course to remove the blocks to love's awareness, right? Which is your natural inheritance. It's what you are. I've said that before, right? You were created, that which created you, created you in love. And your experience of life is meant to be an experience of that joy. (laughs) There's nothing here that is requiring suffering or uh, fear. So the Course in Miracles is a mind training and it's an opportunity to uh, correct the misunderstandings that human beings create, right? We make believe. So the stories we make up about life, the course is very clear in a process to have those misunderstanding falls away. And what remains is um, your true essence of love. Now, what I see is that the wisdom from the East Coast and the wisdom from the West Coast of these United States around the 1970s um, are a beautiful um, reflection of each other. So there's something beautiful about understanding the principle of thought and then looking at the wisdom of A Course in Miracles because wisdom, mind, that which we are that lives inside of us, and the reconciliation that you are not separate from that which created you. In those two spaces, when you occupy them both and see the truth, all that is is the happy dream, right? All that remains is just the beautiful experience of being alive. I I just loved your gesture as well when you brought your two hands together and it folded in in front of your heart. So like this in, in, in what we call Namaste in in uh-huh. uh, India. Wow. Well, I can't believe it's uh, coming to an end of this conversation. We it's like we just started having. I know <laughs> that was a really fast hour. Done very very fast. So we we touch on such a lot, and I I just love the conversation. But if there was one thing, one thing that you would like the listener to take away with them today, what would your message be? That one thing be. If the only thing that people learned was not to be afraid of their experience, that alone would change your world. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. In terms of how people can find you, Katrin. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I have a coaching website, katherinebonniecoaching.com. And I am also on the clubhouse. So I teach daily from A Course in Miracles. 
So you can find me on Clubhouse. It's Catherine Bonney. What time do you teach the Course in Miracles, just in case people are interested? Sure. So Course in Miracles class is at 10 a.m. Eastern daily. And uh, certainly you can just reach out to me personally. Yeah. If you don't want to uh, go on social media, but I just, just thank you. Thank you so much for the space to, to share my heart. I'm ending this interview with such a um, feeling of gratitude, such a loving feeling. And I just loved connecting with you today. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.